incremental changes inside the current constructs, I think we're seeing very clearly are not gonna get us where we need to go. It needs to be radical. For the first time, what these human-centered liberatory models produce is what we are now hearing employers, civic leaders, social leaders, even parents saying, we need kids to have. Ecological ways of being are never about scale. They are about what takes root um, at the local level, inside of communities, inside of families, inside of individuals. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. Today's guest is Olga Joshi Hansen. She's an author, an educational thought leader, and social change advocate with a 20-year career dedicated to shifting the foundational values and approaches that undergrad America's education system. She currently serves as a chief program officer for grant makers for education. Joshi has a PhD in education and philosophy from Oxford University and a JD from Harvard Law School. She's been recognized nationally for her work in education as a Harry S. Truman Scholar, a British Marshall Scholar, and a Paul and Daisy Soros Fellow. I'm really excited about this conversation because it brings so much of the themes that we've been talking about recently, specifically in terms of ancient wisdoms, in terms of thinking beyond mechanistic and Newtonian frameworks and models uh, for learning, for being, for existing, and thinking about it more in terms of a quantum view. I really hope you'll enjoy this conversation. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, give us five stars, and check us out on www.coconut-thinking.design for more podcast episodes, of course, but also our blog and uh, other pieces. So here, I'll leave space for my conversation with Olka. Well, hi, Olka. I'm really excited to have you join our podcast, uh, really wanting to uh, investigate some of uh, the things that you talk about in your book, on the other podcasts that I've, that I've, I've listened to, on Luca Perry's podcast, the Getting Smart podcast. Uh, particularly interested in how you bring in ancient wisdoms, and um, uh, I'm going to throw it in there, uh, uh, quantum views of, of, of engaging in the world, of interacting in the world, and also just your, your longer view of education and learning. Um, but before we get to that, um, I'd just like to ask you, uh, who are you, what are your passions, and how do you try to make a difference? Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I am first and foremost a mother. Uh, my two boys are downstairs. I've told them very clearly that they need to be quiet, but if you hear you know, background noise, that would be my 13 and 15-year-old sons. Um, so I'm a mother. I'm an educator by training um, and have been for a really long time. I was interested in teaching gosh, probably from the time I was in middle school. Um, I'm a mom, I'm an activist, kind of social activist. Um, and so that gets to, you know, what do I do and how do I try to make a difference? I think my sphere of influence has always felt um, like education because it occurred to me at one point pretty early on that all the things I was interested in, whether it was climate or health or well-being, were essentially tied to the systems that human beings built. And so the question became, how do you help grow human beings who have a different understanding of the world and can build different systems? And so um, in different ways, that's what my 20 year career has been about. The question we ask everyone on this podcast, so we can get a shared understanding because we talk about learning a lot, but I, we've come to realize that everybody has a different definition and we try to compile them and learn from that. So what's your definition of learning? How do you define learning? I think I probably think about learning and being human as the same thing. Um, to me, learning is about trying to make sense and meaning um, of who we are, of the situations we find ourselves in, trying to have a sense of purpose, um, right? Which I think is so foundational to who we are. 
And so to me, at least ideally, that is what learning is, is the, the ways in which we go through life, the ways in which we create sense and meaning out of our experiences, and then use that to drive, drive us forward into activity, engagement, and a life that has meaning and purpose. And going into this idea of meaning and purpose, I know um, uh, in your book, you talk about uh, the, the history of education, how education has shifted, probably since the scientific revolution, but especially, of course, the last 150 years. If meaning is connected to meaning and purpose, so if learning is connected to meaning and purpose, what does the current structure of school in, in its in its current form, which is different from how it's been for you know fifty thousand years, learning at least in the the way we learn, how how has that changed and, and influenced meaning and purpose? That's a great question. I love that you ask it, and it's why I started the book where I did. Right, I think sometimes when we when we want to get into the future, we think we have to look into the space that we don't know yet. And I would say we actually need to look backwards to exactly what you said, which is for all of our existence, human beings have learned, have grown inside of their families, their communities, right? We have learned what we needed to learn to survive, to contribute, to kind of, you know, have a sense of ourselves as something larger. And the shift that I that I talk about in the first part of the book, right around the time of the scientific revolution, which is a little bit earlier than the industrial period, right? I think everyone starts with the factory model of school, but I actually start around 500, 550 years ago, because I think at that period in Europe, very specifically, there was a shift from a way of understanding ourselves as human beings connected to something larger, right? Our myths, our legends, our creation stories, kind of understanding ourselves as human beings as part of something larger. In Europe during that period, there was this shift to this intellectual abstracted effort to make sense of the world and to understand it. And to do that, we moved from living or sort of seeing the world in embodied, whole contextualized ways to trying to take it apart into the, the kind of pieces so that we could understand the pieces and then hopefully understand the whole, right? It was a very mechanistic way of thinking about things. And I think that shift um, had implications that have reverberated into society today. And so to your question about meaning and purpose, I think sometimes when we deconstruct things, um, we can't see the meaning and the purpose anymore because we're seeing the small bits. We sort of lose the forest for the trees. And I think that shift is something that happened and took root in Europe during that period. And because it was the period when, you know, we began to colonize the world and sort of go out and export that worldview, um, we sort of took it out um, in a way that it's become kind of a modern way of being, thinking, and building systems. And I think a lot of the tensions we see, both in America and internationally, a lot of the debates we're having about economic, cultural, social issues actually stem from that divide um, of the worldview and, and how we see ourselves. And this goes back to the, the Cartesian duality, that separation of mind and body. And I can see that, I mean, because schools, and I think you pointed this out, um, schools uh, were born uh, at the same time as, as they were carving out Africa, that this the imperialist and, and this civilizing mission of, of the European powers to, to do so. Um, how do you see that tension moving forward in, in, in at a time now where the planet's burning up? And we're, we're now having to think about, oh, gosh, this is what got us to this point. Do you see that being acceleration of this tension or, or how do you see things moving forward? And, and of course, it's a fuzzy horizon. 
Well, I, I do see them as all connected, right? I think we're at a, at a moment, a cultural crossroad where we have to really be clear on what it is about how we see ourselves and how we see ourselves in the world that has created the kind of um, unsustainable societies um, that, that we have. But you know, before I, I go there, right, I think, thank you for sort of pointing out, right, the industrial revolution is what birthed the factory model of education. And what that model sort of put at the center was creating economic, social, political units, which is very different than the idea of helping human beings kind of unfold into their humanity and their personhood. Because I think when, when what we are aiming to do is to help young people unfold into their personhood and have what they need to build fulfilling lives and to thrive in life, their humanity, their connection to the world around them, to other people, to their communities becomes a really central part um, of who they are and how they live. And when they don't, right, when they when they see themselves as individual units whose purpose is to kind of, you know, aggrandize themselves or to be successful as individuals disconnected from anyone else and anything else, right? That is when I think you see the world that we see today, which is we can extract, we can use, we can throw away, we can kind of ignore. And so, you know, I, for me, when I think about education, it's why it feels so very, very important that we be going back to kind of seeing the purpose in very different ways and to see purpose in a way that allows young people to see themselves as stewards um, of the earth, of their communities, um, and of their uh, of others, um, because I think that's the only way, right, that we're going to shift from where we are right now into something that's transformed in a way that's going to make a difference, right? Incremental changes inside the current constructs, I think we're seeing very clearly, are not going to get us where we need to go. It needs to be radical. This is what what, um, what, I, what I think is fascinating about, about this longer-term approach, about looking about education, again, going back 50,000 years, or in some of the ancient wisdoms and, and, and the way um, uh, indigenous or First Nations approach learning. But, but what I find, you know, as a historian, I think about the narrative of school and how people think that it's fixed. And this is, this is fixed. This is how it is. But it's not. It, it's, it, it evolves. Um, the radical change that you said really involves just rewriting the narrative of school. Yes, it does. Except, and you know, in the book, I locate, I start with um, with a conversation about our brains, um, and I talk about the hemispheres of the brain, and I overlay them over these two worldviews, right? So the human brain has two hemispheres, and there's a reason for that. And both hemispheres are really important, and they're really an important part about how we engage in and live in the world. Um, our right hemisphere is kind of the top end of a big funnel that takes in sensory kind of data, information, our embodied lives, you know, all sorts of, of ways of understanding the world that are about our connectedness, right? That's the right hemisphere's job is to kind of see and experience the world in that way. The left hemisphere's job is to make all of that usable. And so what it does is it reduces, it abstracts it, it turns it into data points and ways of, of of being that are usable, but it loses the whole. And so ideally, when the brain is functioning properly, things come in the right, they go to the left to be usable, and then they go back to the right to be kind of used as part of a larger context. So some people might call them wisdom. And I cite the work in the book of a, a gentleman named Ian McGilchrist, who's been making an argument for the last kind of 25 years that 
what we are seeing today is a world that has be, been created by a left hemispheric dominant way of being. So it's a way of building the world that is about the abstractions. It's about the data points. It's about technology as a means or as an end to itself, as opposed to a means to kind of help us be human. And so, you know, th there is something deeply intractable, or it can feel like it's deeply intractable about a lot of our narratives, including the narrative of education. And in part, that's because the human brain has a really hard time breaking out of that way of thinking, which is why I think it's so important that we be very intentional about understanding exactly how we got to where we got so that we can be intentional about shifting and very consciously making decisions that move us out of that unconscious way of being and operating. And this goes back again to the duality and, and the primacy of the cognitive. And because we live in a system that that rewards science and that rewards you know the all, all these these rational logical ways of thinking we, we we forget about the sensing or you know what Arshamer calls the, the presencing right and and then being able to, to to learn from the future how do we stop that when when people think but wait it's about it's about the cognitive and everything else is woo woo and new age nonsense yeah so one of the hallmarks of a left hemispheric kind of cartesian newtonian way of being is it's either or right so it's important and you just said something about it's about science as opposed to something else i want to be really clear and i say it in the book right it's not that i think science is bad it's not that i think the cartesian newtonian worldview and way of understanding the world was immensely valuable right we're in the second year of a global pandemic that frankly we've overcome more quickly than we've ever been able to overcome something like that because of science. So it's not either or. And I think some of the most amazing scientists have also had kind of the ability to live in both hemispheres for lack of a better word. So, you know, I think, I think we have to very intentionally think about this as a both and, which is of course the cognitive, the cognitive and the intellectual is important. And at least to my way of being, it should be in service of our humanity and our kind of our spirits, our sense of purpose, our well-being, and not an end in and of itself, right? And I think that's where we get lost sometimes is that we kind of say, well, you know, it's all about the future is about STEM. It's like, no, it's not about STEM. It could be about STEM or technology in service of many other things, but what are those things that we want? And those, those questions, right? That what do we want? What do we want to build? What makes us well? Um, those, those questions are offered often seen as the domain of the spiritual or the religious or the, you know, to use your phrase, the woo-woo. Um, and, and that's where I think we get ourselves tied up in knots because it feels like we have to belong to one or the other as opposed to saying, what's useful and what creates a world in which we get to be whole, right? Because I think, and we don't often talk about this, but I think a dominance of this Cartesian Newtonian left hemispheric way of being inflicts trauma on us because it does not allow us to experience ourselves as who we are, right? And so it traumatizes you, whether you're an indigenous kind of community that's been colonized and decimated, and it also harms you if you're a white person in the most privileged context of society, because ultimately it's about taking you away from your humanity. And I think if we could start with that premise, to say that that to 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 make this shift lifts all of us, um, maybe we could be having different conversations because it wouldn't feel like it's such a threat um, to 
to kind of people or systems. It will change them, right? And no doubt there'll be power that shifts and things that shift. But you know, at least see it as a as a potential win for all of us in important ways. And going on that, I mean, one of the things that that I'm fascinated about is is the fact that if you are a philosopher talking about consciousness, you bring in the quantum. And if you're a scientist in in quantum mechanics, you bring about consciousness. It really comes together. And and the next step is the interconnection, both on a physical level, a scientific level, the quantum, but also consciousness and how we have social fields or or fields of consciousness and 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 how we're interconnected because of the shared experiences that we have. Well, it's interesting. In the I think it's the end of the second chapter of the book. Um, I have a diagram. So I worked with um, a graphic design company that's high school students, and so their business was to kind of do the graphic. And they did the graphics. I used to have a table that had Cartesian Newtonian on one side and the holistic indigenous on the other side. And that didn't feel right because it played into that either or. And so the graphic is actually sort of circles one inside the other. And the Cartesian Newtonian circle is the smallest. And the next one out is kind of holistic indigenous. And then there's a third circle that has no name because we don't even understand or have a name for it yet. And I think what's interesting is, you know, scientists talk about quantum physics as this like new thing after kind of, you know, classical physics was developed, but actually human beings had always been aware of what we now think of as the quantum because they had always understood that things were connected in ways that we couldn't quite understand and that things were about duality and, you know, about this kind of complex way of understanding. So it's really about kind of putting ourselves back in an understanding of the world of ourselves of reality that allows us to sit inside the ambiguity of there's a lot we don't know. Um, There's a lot we can't put words to or put concepts to because it's beyond the grasp of sort of where we happen to be right now and that that's okay, but there's an amount of humility that comes with that, which is to say, this is the best we know right now. Um, And that actually the reality of it is likely something that goes beyond our conception of it at the moment. And that humility is key, that vulnerability and the ability to to say, I don't know, or try to get a view of other people's perspective. But we live in a world where that's really difficult, right? And and it is this either or, and we are entrenched and dig our heels. And how how do we, um, and, and, you know, if we had an answer to this, then we would solve world peace. But how, how do, how, but, but nevertheless, we can still start to explore these unknowns ourselves. And how, how do we engage in dialogue with people who might not necessarily share this understanding? That is, that is a question for the ages, right? And I, I you're talking to me, I'm in, in the US at the moment. And every once in a while, you know, I have my moments where I'm sitting in a parking lot. I'm like, oh my God, I'm living in a dystopian universe because it feels like we're so far from a moment where we can do that. Let me pull it back to the school or the programs that I talk about in the book, because that's a macro, a micro example of something that I think we can think about at the macro level. So I've often said, like, one of the things that's most striking to me about these programs that I think of as holistic indigenous kind of learning models is the way in which the adults in that space show up in the space, right? For whatever reason, for different reasons and in different ways, they've all come in with the ability to kind of be okay with themselves. Not perfect, they haven't figured everything out. It's not that they don't have traumas or problems, but they've done enough to be secure enough in who they are that they can hold space for other people, including young people, to show up as who they are. And that ability, changes the entire dynamic of the community. And I've often you know, thought about this idea of belonging 
Ness, right? Belonging is so central in the ability to create a space of belonging for other people. But that actually takes um, a comfort and a security in your own sense of identity so that who I am does not get disrupted by somebody who might show up with things that are challenging to me or experiences that are different than mine. And so, you know, if I were to take that micro example and sort of blow it up a little bit, um, you know, I think I think a lot of it starts with the individual, which is not a, you know, it's not a helpful conversation for people who want to scale things very quickly. But I do think it's about how each of us shows up in the world in a way that allows us moment to moment and interaction to interaction to actually say, all right, who's this person in front of me? And how do I allow us to create a space, even if you are somebody with whom I disagree violently? on a political position or a you know intellectual position because at the end of it we're both human we're both trying to like figure something out and we're both here for our own journeys and can we sort of create that space to just put it out there and to not see it as a threat um, because as soon as you see it as a threat you have to shut it down um, and so at least in the US when you ask that question I have a whole second book like in my brain that um, the working title is like on the edge of outside, but it really is about belonging and identity. And, you know, what does it mean to create that if you've never had it? Or what does it mean to create it if you've not been brought up in a community or a society um, that teaches you the skills that you need to both create belonging for others and to allow yourself to belong? And in a world where uh, kids are brought up by parents, family, somewhat of a community, and then schools, this will be a great segue into uh, human liberatory schools that, that you talk about and, and, and what that might look like uh, in terms of that community feel that, that maybe that place where, where, where people can feel that they belong. Well, what Can you tell us a little bit about what human liberatory schools are and, and, and your vision of that? So, um, so this is going to overlay, and I'm I'm using my hands, and those of you who are listening can't see it, which is which is the one challenge of podcasts. But I tend to think of schools in three buckets, right? On the far left hand side, I think of conventional schools, which are really your industrial factory model schools in the modern day, and then there's a huge bucket in the middle that I call in the book um, whole child innovator reform, and those are programs that recognize what doesn't work with the conventional model. And they try and bolt on solutions, right? They bolt on socio-emotional learning or project-based learning or interdisciplinary work or culturally responsive practice, but they've never taken the time to actually question the assumptions about the purpose of education, who young people are, what learning actually is, right? And so those two categories of schools are both kind of sitting underneath that Cartesian Newtonian worldview. And then holistic indigenous liberatory or human-centered indigenous kind of liberatory models, um, which is the third bucket, are ones that sort of come out of a very different worldview, a very different sense of the purpose of education, right? That the purpose of education is to help young people unfold into their personhood and to have what they need to thrive in life, knowing that that's partly academic and cognitive, but it's about all these other things and it's gonna be unique to every young person. It's about an understanding instead of, um, set of understandings about human development, that that period between zero and 25 is a period of unfolding. We're not just little adults at that stage, right? We're at, we have developmental stages and we need to be supported through them. And it understands learning to be something that is iterative, that is jagged, that is unique to each individual person's context, interests, personalities, 
even sort of a, a spiritual sense of purpose, right? And that, that that's what learning is. And so because they design out of that set of values, um, they ground themselves first and foremost in relationship. Um, and they really do think about the relationships of young people to each other, to the adults in the program, to the community at large. And then they think about learning in ways that are really aligned with kind of the developmental stage of young people, right? Moving from how do you help young people just know a lot about lots of things to build schema in their kind of zero to eight years. And then when they're in middle school, like my two kiddos are, be able to answer the, answer the question of why should I care, right? Because if I don't, I'm not gonna do it. And then by the time they're in secondary school, kind of answering the question, well, who do I wanna be? And how does this relate to my purpose and a growing sense of purpose? So, and because they design themselves in this way, um, they are, the best way to describe them is kind of living organistic systems inside of which there's this constant evolution of the learning process, um, of the outcomes. And yeah, it's the best way to describe it is this sort of unfolding into an end result that at least based on the research I've done, creates exactly the sort of people everyone say they want young people to be when they come out of education. And then we scratch our heads about the first two buckets and why the young people who come out of those programs aren't all of those things. Um, and I would say that's by design. And I think about uh, this idea then this, again, this Newtonian mechanistic view of cause and effect. I tell you something and you're going to act and if, or even if I provide this environment and create this experience, you're just going to emerge and, and, and come out this other way. Like, like again, I mean, literally a, a machine, you input and output. I, I'm also struck by this idea because of, of, of because what you're describing seems like a, a regenerative, well, it is a regenerative model as opposed to a, um, a, a model of sustainability, which is a, a strange word. And I'm thinking about the sustainable development goals, which follow quite a bit in terms of this cause and effect. If we care about quality education, we need to do this. If we want to do fix uh, clean water, we need to do that. It's, it's, it's very much, this is the problem. This is how we solve it. And it doesn't get us out of, of this idea as opposed to living uh, in that regenerative system, that live, the understanding it's a living system. Yeah, I know. I was just in Glasgow as it cut um, 26 and was having some conversations there. Here's the interesting thing about the way that I view the world and the framework that I put out in the book is it can actually get you in trouble with a lot of people, right? Because I, I, I agree with you. I think the, the, the kind of goals are a reflection of a very left hemispheric way of thinking of both defining the problem and seeing kind of the solutions, right? It is a technocratic kind of way of, of trying to get to the goals. And I try to be really careful in the book, right? Because I, we all do this. The cultural stew we live inside of is this left hemispheric dominant Cartesian Newtonian cultural stew. And so, and for many of us who are quote unquote successful, we're successful because we learn to play the game that most of us have played. And therefore it's deeply embedded in who we are and how we see challenges and possible solutions. And I think many of our systems and in the book I explore the kind of US ed reform movement, but I think a lot of our global efforts are grounded in very similar, um, you know, problem statement, theory of action, you know, here's where we'll get to that, you know, so far as I can tell, they're not quite getting us where we say we need to get to. And I would say that part of the reason is because they're not truly understanding the problem and aren't trying to design inside of a different 
kind of worldview because I think the parameters of both what's possible and what the challenges are shift when you're in one worldview versus the other. And the problem is, of course, that if you go too far outside that Overton window, people just stop listening and call you a radical freak. And, and you have to kind of get to this, this place where we can all agree the safe place and the SDGs really are a safe place because for some, they already feel like it's a push. Right. Although, you know, when I was in some of the conversations there was the pushback, right, that we see from different nations that have been on the receiving end of, you know, development, developed nations kind of efforts and input and philanthropist money to kind of say, no, no, you know, you're trying, you're not truly understanding who we are, where we are, what our challenges, opportunities, you know, resources are. And so there's this kind of interesting pushback, although I think even on the ground in the places that are the recipients of the development goals, I think even there, again, go back to colonization, but those societies themselves are grappling with this very interesting tension of what do we know, who were we before these external structures came? And then all the structures and power dynamics that were created through colonization and the sort of anointing of certain people, certain systems, certain ways of doing things that comported um, with you know, those who colonized. So it's a, it's a fascinating complex puzzle that could really explode your brain. <laughs> And it represents so many of the challenges, right? And, and again, trying to move people into, into that field. I, I want to go back to these to the schools that, that do appreciate the more regenerative models. They, like they feel very isolated on the fringe. And in a certain way, that's okay because all social revolutions, political revolutions start on the fringe and then eventually expand. How does that get momentum or how do, does it does it get traction in a world that is so opposed to this because it would, of course, put into question the capitalist system? Right. Small question. Um, so so I, I talk about that in the book. So I do, you know, part of what I do is I trace the history. So when the factory model developed, that's when I would say these kind of holistic, um, these human-centered liberatory models developed. And so they've been around the whole time that we've had this kind of mass education system based on one set of values. We've had this, this counter-cultural kind of set of schools that have existed in the private sector, the independent sector, in some countries, in the public sector. Um, and so the good news is we actually have a really good sense of what they are, of how they work. We have some really interesting models that I think you could codify as sort of the starting point for the work that we need to do. I think what's interesting at this moment is there's this confluence of factors, right? We have artificial intelligence and technology. We have a world that is shifting at a rate that has never before been seen kind of in, in human existence. We're seeing sectors, whether it's the employment sector, the post-secondary you know, higher education sector being rattled for issues of cost and you know, whether this is worth it or not. And the way I say this is that for the first time, what these human-centered liberatory models produce is what we are now hearing employers, civic leaders, social leaders, even parents saying, we need kids to have, right? So before it was countercultural. Now, if we take ourselves at our word, we are saying that we need something, that our existing system, no matter how much we tweak it, reform it, improve it, won't get us to where we need to go. A Model T can never get you to the moon. It's a completely different set of outcomes that you need. And I would say that the human-centered liberatory models 
are the sort of rocket ship equivalent, which is we're now saying we need something really different. They are what gets us there. And so it's why in the book, I, try, I take care to kind of distinguish between the two buckets at the beginning and the third bucket of the humans, human-centered laboratory, because we need to understand the difference because the, the question of how do we get there is, this is not a two-year program, right? Right now I work with an organization called Grantmakers for Education. So it's philanthropists, educational philanthropists who are driven by a real desire to help young people. And one of, the, one of the things I've been saying a lot is this is a 20 year project. It's not a two to three year project. And so if you're serious about this, you have to understand the nature of the 20 years and the arc of the 20 years, and you need to be seeing it in stages and phases. So for me, the first phase is you understand the distinction, you empower the people who've already been doing this work, who understand what it takes, who understands how our existing systems don't work for them, in fact, make what they wanna do very, very difficult, if not impossible, especially in public systems. Um, and you give them sort of research and development space to actually build new systems and structures and policies that support their work. So how do you credential learning if it's not happening inside of buildings with quote unquote teachers? How do you think about assessing outcomes that go beyond you know, facts and figures? How do you think about accountability in ways that actually account for this kind of very rich complex work? How do you do post-secondary admissions, which is every parent's nightmare, right? Which is how is my child gonna get into X program, right? When they still care about GPAs and classes and whatever, right? I'm not gonna do that with my kid. So you need to give them room to build these aligned, um, coherent systems and structures. And that's kind of your first phase. And at the same time, you're trying to improve our existing systems as best you can, but you're doing it in ways that are consistent with where we wanna get to 20 years from now. So the example I use in the US is, we decided to do accountability based on standardized testing. That took us back 20 years because inherently standardized tests kind of root you in the Cartesian Newtonian worldview. So now we have to undo that. So how do you improve the existing system in ways that are consistent with your 20 year goal? And then I think a lot of it is telling the stories and showcasing what is happening. You know, you mentioned that you started in Silicon Valley, what I find fascinating is the number of really wealthy, rich people who live in Silicon Valley and everywhere else who send their kids to human-centered laboratory programs. You know, they don't send their kids to the, to the hyper-successful um, conventional models. So people know that this is valuable, and I think we need to be telling the stories and saying, here's who young people become, and have both young people and the people that care about them kind of saying, here, here's what we're getting so that other people go, wait, why, why can't I have that? I don't want this old thing. I want the new thing. And so I think it's the change adoption curve that we see in technology and lots of other places that we need to put into play here. And talking about the 20 or 30 year model, we're also talking about a world where if AI replaces a lot of jobs, they, they say that, you know, folks will have to, or, you know, kids now who will be folks later uh, will have to reinvent themselves three, four times in careers, not just change jobs like, like we do. Um, in the same more or less industry, but three or four times, which means that they're continuously going to have to 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 be in school or start kind of learning space. So then it no longer becomes K-12, it becomes K-65 or maybe unfortunately K-75 in 30 years, but it changes that system altogether. Right. 
I mean, it goes back, it goes back to how I, uh, how I started when you said like, what is learning to me? Learning is being human. So the idea that we took learning and made it so that my kids and many other kids think that you learn for the first 18 years of your life, or maybe 22 years of your life, and then you're done. Like that's not the model anymore, right? It's that I'm constantly learning, growing, evolving, new skills, new sets. And I think things like blockchain, right? The idea of having a blockchain resume, that's just a set of credentials and skills that you have that you grow throughout your lifetime. I think those sorts of technologies are potentially really interesting because they allow us, if we're thoughtful about it, to let people think about their lives and think about the learning that they're doing along the way um, and to feel like it's valuable and not not valuable because, oh, I don't have a degree that comes with it, or I don't have a place that, you know, credentials it yet. So um, the one thing I do want to say, though, is the whole conversation about technology getting rid of jobs. McKinsey did a report, I think it was a couple of years ago, and I thought what was fascinating about their analysis was that in general, you're not getting rid of entire fields. You're actually going to be changing what human beings need to do inside of those fields. So it's kind of Ray Kurzweil's singularity, right? The idea of how does technology and human intelligence kind of combine to get us what we need. But I think the argument there, and it's how I think about, you know, the book is called The Future of Smart. And I didn't put air quotes around smart, but I think it's about expanding our definitions. But to me, we have to think about smart as being about deeply human capabilities. So it's the things AI and technology can't do, which is dealing with ambiguity and unknowns and complexity and empathy and problem solving and collaboration, right? All of those deeply human skills. And then, you know, the other part of it is neurodiversity, which is different minds experience the world in different ways. And to our earlier conversation, like it's great if I have somebody whose frame of life is purely, is highly analytic and really kind of seeing that part. The question is, can they work with somebody whose view of the world and understanding of the world is different so that you can have this complementary set of skills that we can put to work on complex challenges, like the ones that we're all, you know, seeing down the pike, whether it's climate or vaccines or health or development, right? All those things. And in some ways, I, I might be going into dangerous territory here, but this uh, technology becomes a complement to what we do and, and it's a shifting one. So we have to shift as well. I, I think about how we use uh, uh, Google Maps or Apple Maps when we drive, it doesn't replace our driving, but it just makes us operate in a different way. Right. I think I think that's right. I mean, look, we can only, to our previous conversation, I'm not going to pretend I know what things are going to be a thousand years from now, but I do know that when you talk to people who do tech and do non-biological intelligence, like the idea that you're going to have technology that can replicate the human ability to deal with ambiguity and unknowns, like that's not going to happen um, in the next two to three decades. It's going to take a lot longer. So at least, you know, in, in that time frame and time horizon, we need to be thinking about how human beings do kind of what we do best and then allow technology to do what it it, it does best. Um, although there was something I was going to say when you use the driving analogy, I think, I think what's interesting in that is everyone loves brain science until you tell them something they don't like about brain science. So what's interesting about Google Maps just as a concrete example, is that they're saying that there's a part of it that actually our brains require us to orient ourselves in space and to understand where we are and to be able to kind of navigate without the help of Google Maps. 
And so by using Google, Google Maps, there's a really interesting question about whether there's something fundamental about the human brain that we're letting go that may have implications that we don't understand. So there's been research around the tie between that and um, you know dementia and sort of early onset kind of dementia. And so again, we just need to be thoughtful, right? What is technology? What is its highest and best use to get us to where we wanna go? But technology itself does not define what is best. Technology should be a tool that takes us where we wanna go, but the conversation about what we want and what is desirable and what is good for us as human beings is a very different one. And I think it needs to be separate from the conversation about technology so that we can then use technology in service of and not be driven by it. And right now there are a lot of economic and political forces um, that would like technology to be the driver of those conversations rather than the, the sort of um, contributors to a solution after the fact. And speaking of economic and political forces, what are your thoughts in terms of the meritocratic system that we have? A lot of these ideas that the meritocratic system is one of the last forms of acceptable discrimination. So one last thing I'll, I'll say, I was at a book event about a week ago and somebody said to me, you know, they said, love these ideas. It's really great. I can see this working in Denver or another urban area, but, you know, in these small town, rural communities, you know, really conservative people, you know, this will never fit for them because they'll think it's socialism or they'll think it's whatever. And I, I, I get this a lot. And I want to be really, really clear that, you know, I think our current system um, has been infused with a sense of elitism and meritocracy that is pretty narrowly defined. And when I think about some of the things I talk about in the book, like what we value as skills and capabilities, when I've gone to rural communities, half my family lives in rural Nebraska and Kansas, and they say, you know what? We build houses. You have all these people making policy who can't even change a light bulb. Our kids raise animals for 4-H. They run our farms. They run our businesses. And this whole ed reform thing with College for All has not you know, respected or valued that at all. And so I actually think that the type of human-centered liberatory models that I talk about, one, you do find them in communities all around the country. And I think there's something especially interesting to them, uh, about them to people who come from the communities that we don't often associate with our conversations about educational equity and reform. And so I just, I think there are a lot of powerful interests that try to divide us across political and ideological and economic lines. And one of the things that I hope this book does is say, you've got to turn everything kind of and sort of cut it a different way. Because what I'm talking about is something that actually unites us apart from and you know across all of these kind of lines that people use very strategically to try and divide us and so it should not belong to the liberal or conservative side it should not belong to the reform or the non-reform side it should not belong to the union or the non-union side there are things inside of this that i think are about deeply embedded questions and values about what it means to be human, to be ourselves, to be part of communities, to belong, to have a sense of identity. And those things are shared um, across communities. And so I, I just wanna leave that because I think um, oftentimes the people who are, who are reading the book tend to be people who kind of know me or think like me. And I'm like, no, this is relevant and important to everybody. 
Thank you so much for, for speaking with us. I, I'm going to leave it open to you. And, and maybe this is the et cetera section or what's on your mind, what are your plans? You say you have a second book in your, in your head. <laughs> what's next in the, in the short, medium term for you? Um, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. The thing about writing a book for anybody who's listening to this, who has done it is you spend all this time writing it and then you launch it and then everyone's like, how's it going? I don't know. I, I do think we're at a cultural crossroads. I do think that education and how we think about education and how we think about who we want our young people to become is a really big part of this. And when we touched on this in our conversation, Cartesian Newtonian is about scaling, right? It's we can have a silver bullet that is somehow going to like do this massive shift. And ecological ways of being are never about scale. They are about what takes root um, at the local level inside of communities, inside of families, inside of individuals. And so to me, kind of what's next is how do we get these conversations going in as many families, schools, communities as possible for those conversations to kind of drive, you know, drive the next phase of what do we want our schools to look like and how do we make either simple shifts that start to get us there or really radical shifts if that's where people want to go. Because to me, the image I have in my mind that I talk about in the third part of the book, that's really a theory of changes. It's about kind of like points of light, almost like, you know, little flowers coming up kind of on the landscape. And over time, those things kind of come together and create a whole carpet. But it's not going to be a top down, some person decides they're going to make it happen, or some government is going to make it happen. And so I really do try in the last chapter of the book to say, you know, if you're a parent, if you're an educator, if you're a policymaker, if you're just a concerned citizen, um, right, that doesn't have any kids or any real interest in education, how do we see this as our challenge and opportunity? Um, and how do we use our sphere of influence to kind of move this conversation forward? Because we realize it's not just about education. It's kind of about our collective um, well-being and survival and sustainability. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. We are in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. Check us out on www.coconut-thinking.design. And uh, you can also find our articles and uh, podcasts on Intrepid Ed News, as well as articles and podcasts from uh, some fantastic education thought leaders, writers, activists. And that website is www.intrepidednews.com. If you like the podcast, subscribe on um, your favorite platform. Leave us five stars. Again, check us out on www.coconut-thinking.design uh, on LinkedIn. Connect with us. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And until next time.